are. So, abnormal psych, we're back. This is part two of um, anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders. Remember that this chapter, chapter five, or chapter six, five, six, six, right, is combined, right? So again, these are two different categories of disorders. We started talking about anxiety disorders. We made it through some of them, panic disorder um, with specific phobias and agoraphobia. Where we left off is right here at social anxiety disorder, all right? So social anxiety disorder is what we used to call social phobia. In fact, we used to just consider it like, here's phobias, one type of phobia is specific phobia, one type is agoraphobia, and one type is social phobia. And of course, under specific phobia, there's animal type, situation type, all that. Well, here we just kind of separated out, we kind of got rid of one of the umbrellas. So we kind of put it in its own little category, right, social phobia. Notice it says it's similar to specific phobia, except the symptoms are connected to situations where you're exposed to unfamiliar people or you're at the scrutiny of other people and you feel like you're going to act in a way that might be embarrassing or humiliating. So there's actually different kinds of what we call clarifiers to determine what we're talking about here. One example might be social phobia with limited interaction. That means that maybe in groups, you're great. Group of 20, you fit right in, you're part of the group. One-on-one -on -one situations, incredibly threatening to you. So it's limited interaction. Does that kind of make sense? It might be social phobia where you have a fear of large groups. One-on-one, -on -one, you're awesome. Puts you in front of a group and ask you to ask a question or answer a question. Oh, it's overwhelming. So again, and the key feature is the situation, the social situation is triggering anxiety. And you want to avoid the anxiety, so you try to avoid the social situation. Imagine that you have a fear of public speaking. Again, that's a form of social phobia. So if you stand up here, we talk about performance phobia, the, the, the risk of performing in front of others. So you have a speech class and you go and have a panic attack right before your speech. And you need speech class in order to get your degree, but you can't make it through the class because it's so debilitating. That's when we talk about an abnormal behavior. Does that make sense? Like all of us get nervous in front of groups. I get nervous in front of groups, but I still do it. Do you get so nervous that, so anxious that you can't perform, you can't do it? That's where we start getting into, you know, this kind of disability or, or distress. So what we know is exposure to these situations almost immediately triggers distressing fear symptoms, which again might escalate all the way to panic attack. It doesn't require a panic attack, but it's this overwhelming anxiety and fear. Social anxiety disorder, again, can involve shyness, social anxiety that's severe enough to interfere with normal life in terms of occupation, academic, and that's a big one. If it's interfering with your academics, you can't even you know, get your degree because of this social phobia, social anxiety phobia, then that's big time. You know, it also impacts interpersonal functioning. And again, it has to occur for more than six months. It can't be a temporary condition, right? And notice it says here, the diagnosis can be subtyped as performance only um, if the fear is limited to performing or speaking in public. Apparently, <laughs> always makes me chuckle when I think about it. Apparently, Bill Clinton claims that he had performance anxiety or social phobia. It's one of the reasons why he did not, when he was uh, a candidate for presidency, why he did not like getting in front of large groups. He didn't like to do stadium tours. He liked town hall meetings because they were less threatening. Don't know if that's true or not, but that's something that was shared. So. I shared along, right? So social anxiety uh, disorder, um, one of the things we know, what about treatment? Well, here we are, remember, anxiety disorders, so short-term uh, benzodiazepines, again, you know, anti-anxiety meds, um, great for short-term relief. Now, maybe this will get you through your speech class, but it's not what you should be doing on a regular basis because of its chance of addiction. I once, uh, in this class, Abnormal Psych, I was teaching at another campus, and uh, I had a woman that was doing a presentation, 10-minute presentation on anxiety disorders, 
and she was all nervous in the hallway beforehand and um, you know she said uh, I'm sorry I'm sorry you know I, I, I just need a moment to get myself together and I'm like okay you know I'll walk in and you come in when you're ready she, you know, she walks in, she says, okay, I popped my volume, I'm good for the presentation now. Like, announced it in front of the whole class. Not exactly what you want to hear. But, again, I can understand the overwhelming sensations. Um, we know that um, SNRIs um, have also been used effectively. So, these are norepinephrine as opposed to serotonin, right? We know that cognitive behavioral therapies are also effective treatment, and that's usually, again, our go-to for anxiety disorders. Um, techniques involve systematic exposure to the feared situation combined with relaxation training, you know, just like other phobias, right? We talked about last class. Um, newer CBT um, applications include virtual reality technologies, um, computer-generated scenarios of public speaking and getting you to experience that. Um, also appears to be promising. And believe it or not, the little things that you do in your daily activity can help break that down. There's, um, I want to say it's, oh man, there's an organization, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I, I want to say Roast Masters, but I don't think that's it. There's a, an organization where you get together on a regular basis once a month. They pick a topic, and your job is to debate it with other people. Well, getting in that debate process of you know, taking a position and then supporting it with, you know, against evidence that you have, breaking that down, practicing it in different settings allows you to kind of master social anxiety a little bit better. So, again, that's kind of a behavioral approach. Generalized anxiety disorder, here's the next one, GAD, and it's characterized by a nearly constant state of worry and apprehension about a wide variety of topics. So this is what I like to call, I like to give people like little ways to remember this, this is the worry wart. This is the person that worries for six months plus about everything. And when they have nothing to worry about, they worry about the fact that they have nothing to worry about. They're waiting for the shoe to drop. What's going to happen next, right? So I like to pick on family members because you know I can get away with that, um, even though I'm recording it. Hopefully they never listen. But my mother-in-law has an anxiety disorder. I believe she has generalized anxiety disorder. She worries about everything. She's constantly anxious. She worries about the state of everything. And so again, and sometimes things outside of her control, she can't do anything about. But she worries anyway. Notice it says it has to exist for um, almost all the days, you know, over a six-month period. It says on most days. Several symptoms of the autonomic arousal are present. So in other words, they're so worrisome that they can't sleep, they can't concentrate, they have muscle tension, irritability, they're fatigued, they feel exhausted from the stress of worrying or the anxiety of worrying all the time. And it gets to the point where it interferes with their daily life. Notice it says people with GAD find their worries difficult to control, distressing, and physically troublesome. But here's the key. With generalized anxiety disorder, it doesn't seem to get to the level of a panic attack. So I like to describe this as a low level of worry but constant. Yes? Um, so I actually have generalized and like I'm like worrying about like everything but I've only had like three panic attacks in the like I've been diagnosed since I was seven and I've only had like three panic attacks but um like I have really bad issues sleeping and I'm always in pain from like the tension that I have because mm -hmm. you're walking around all tense and it's almost like your your muscles are tensed all the time yeah. and so yeah like the big thing I'm worrying about right now is I work at one and this class ends at 11 and despite only like being 30 minutes away I'm still worried because I feel like that's not enough time right. but like in my head I know it's enough time but mm -hmm. like I'm still like stressing about it right now and that's a perfect example thank you for sharing that right you said you've been suffering with from GAD for since you've been seven yeah like, so 12 years 12 years so 12 years you've been struggling and like you said class ends at 11 you've got a half hour trip to get to work you don't have to be there till one 
But you think about all the things that could go wrong. Well, I could get a flat tire. Somebody could run out. I could be in an accident. There could be a roadblock. I mean, you know, famine, uh, pestilence. It could be a hurricane. I mean, you think about all this stuff. And, and I like how you said that. You're like, I know there's enough time. I know this is kind of silly. I know this doesn't make sense. But it doesn't change it, does it? No. Right? Thank you for sharing that, right? So, generalized anxiety disorder, what about treatment? Here we go again, right? Notice it says both medical and psychological treatment can be helpful, but rarely result in total symptom remission. Yeah, that worry-wart tendency, yeah, tends to be a long-term ongoing problem that you have to learn to cope with in some way. And if we go with that autonomic arousal, maybe your fight or flight system is kicking in too frequently. So you're always on edge, you're always keyed up. And you can see how over time that can wear you down physically, right? Effective medications include GABA stimulants, such as benzodiazepines, of course, right? Bisperone for short-term treatment. We've got antidepressants, especially SSRIs. Again, more helpful in long-term treatment. And again, sometimes what you'll see with this worry is you'll see this underlying level of depression because you're, you're worried that it's never gonna work itself out, it's never gonna be okay, and so that's what kind of exists and hangs in there. Psychotherapy can also be helpful. It appears, notice it says, at least as effective as pharmacological interventions. So talk therapy, just as effective. And again, I always say, if you could figure out a way to use talk therapy in, in, you know, instead of medications, then you don't have to worry about medication side effects. Because everything you take has a side effect. I don't care what it is. There's always a side effect. Um, notice it says, however, there's some disagreement about its effectiveness in controlled clinical trials. So I think, again, it goes back to if you believe that treatment approach will help you and you are committed to using that effectively, you're going to have more success than if you believe nothing's going to help me. So again, there's a, there's a little bit of uh, placebo effect or self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, in there. You have to believe in the treatment approach. If you don't, you're going to be frustrated. Separation anxiety disorder. Separation anxiety disorder, a person experiences developmentally, developmentally, inappropriate or excessive fear or anxiety associated with separation from home or caregivers. So normally we think that this is a childhood issue or an adolescent issue, but again, it could be something more than that. Um, it could be an adult and not to the point where it's agoraphobia, but it gets pretty close. So again, it, it kind of has some similarities to agoraphobia, which is fear of open spaces. Notice it says the disturbance must last at least four weeks in children and six months or more in adults. So again, a more long-term issue. And the condition may precede the onset of panic disorder with agoraphobia. Think about it. separation anxiety disorder. So you're fearful of leaving your home. You're fearful of being separated from your belongings and your things or your family members. You can see how that could lead to panic disorder with agoraphobia, where just the thought of leaving your house creates so much anxiety that you have a panic attack, and then it gets to the point where you can't leave the house at all. Yes? Okay, so I know that it says in children, but when does it typically start? Like, what is the lowest age range that any anxiety disorder can be when we, well, diagnosed to a child? We now, in DSM-5, say that it's all one. We put it all together. In the, in the, back in the day, we would have separated childhood disorders out. I, I'm going to share my opinion. I liked the time when we, we pulled childhood, childhood disorders out because I think separation anxiety disorder, and I'll just use this as an example, how much of that seems semi-reasonable for children? Right? Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't get extreme in children. It does but it gets to the point where it's so excessive. Sometimes in children where, the, I mean, their parent can't even leave. Maybe can't even go to work. I mean, there's almost an enmeshment. But I still think that, that, that can, you can grow out of that as you become an adult. 
when you group them all together, I don't know. I mean, it, it just, it's concerning to me. So every child would be different. Every, childhood's, every child's different. And again, this would be beyond the normal expectation. You're a parent, you leave your child with a babysitter. Do you think your child might be upset for a while? Oh, yeah. Sure, maybe even a half an hour. Maybe even an hour. But within an hour's time, the child should settle down, the babysitter and the child start getting along, they form a relationship, everything's great. All right? Now this is a child that's never gonna calm down. They're gonna be heightened up the whole time to the point where the babysitters might call the parents and say, you have to come home, they're out of control. And as soon as the parents show up, the, be the behavior slows down. So again, it can be frustrating for parents um, if we're talking about children. But when we talk about adults, again, I think adults, it's more connected with separation from home rather than a primary caregiver. I think when we talk about children, we're talking primary caregiver. When we talk about, again, adults, I think a little bit more associated with leaving the home. Like, I don't want to leave my home. It's my castle. I feel safe there. I don't want to go. So and then it kind of transforms into a, an agoraphobia kind of situation. Good questions. Prevalence is about 4% in children, appears more common among females than males. Again, I wonder if females are more willing to share that. Separation anxiety is a strong predictor for subsequent mental disorders. So think about that. In childhood, having a child with excessive separation anxiety, could that be an indication of maybe an anxiety underlining concern that could then show up in adulthood in other ways? Yes. We know it's related to panic disorder and even major depressive disorder. So could be some kind of connection. Again, we know that anxiety disorders and mood disorders are closely related. And then cognitive behavioral therapy appears to be effective um, for separation anxiety disorder in children. So again, talking about it, you know, your parents are leaving, they're just going out on a date, they're not going to die, there's not going to be a car accident, working through those feelings and coming up with some behavioral techniques to deal with it. Yes? So in all of these um, anxiety disorders, um, there's been like, take the medication that can help you as part of treatment. And then it's like improving your sleep and improving your ability and improving all these things. My question is, is when you're taking the medication is what is the medication actually doing that's calming you down like is it so like a person has ADHD inattentive type and they take say Ritalin Adderall or Concerta or whatever and then they feel more rested is that because the meds are basically like slowing down your brain functioning so that you're not as tired about everything? It's, it, well, I, I want to kind of caution you. So you said ADHD inattentive type. So that means you have a difficult time focusing attention. Your, your mind's racing from topic to topic to topic. Give you a stimulant. It allows you to hone in and focus more specifically. Uh -huh. And I think that's the benefit. So okay. now back to this. What is it doing exactly? Yeah. It's calming you down. I think what it's doing when you give the medication is it's getting the autonomic nervous system to not react as impactful. Like, so it's not really like a tranquilizer, but essentially not, that's... Benzodiazepines, things like uh, Valium, are tranquilizers. Okay. That's why they're addictive, because right. people fall into that. With, with uh, SSRIs and, and antidepressants, um, tricyclic antidepressants, they don't have that addictive quality, so they tend to stabilize the mood a little bit more. I think, you know, think about pulling it in with normal ranges. You know, an antidepressant doesn't mean you're not going to feel depressed. You, you are, but you're just not going to feel extreme depression. So again, it, I, I'd like to think it limits the range of emotions within normal ranges as opposed to being excessive, if that helps. So let's talk just one more second about um, again, taking a medication for an autonomic arousal. So maybe my, my tendency is to jump into fight or flight too quickly. This medication allows me to maybe calm that or pause that a bit to give me an extra opportunity to think about it before I immediately jump into that realm. Okay. So you're really just treating the symptom. And that's one of the reasons why if I take you off the med, what do you think is going to return? Yeah. You got the autonomic arousal is going to come back unless the body somehow reestablishes a new homeostasis. Some cases it might, in other cases it doesn't. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Yes? 
Uh, I was just going to touch on the treatment. But yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm on two different types of anxiety uh, medication because last year I went from extreme depression to extreme anxiety. Um, I'm on Buspor, which is bu it was mm -hmm. one of the um, treatments for generalized. And then I'm on hydroxyzine. Um, main reason is because they have the lowest dose, doses of um, addiction rates. So instead of me being on Xanax and Valium and all those different types where it does put you in a trance and it doesn't let you like really think like you should, I'm calmer, I can focus a lot easier. Like last year, my anxiety got so bad that I didn't want to get out of my house because I was afraid I was going to get into a car accident. My brother passed away due to a car accident, but he was hit while walking. So for me to even think that I was going to get into a car accident that had no like relevance at all, um, I couldn't sleep because I thought I was going to die in my sleep, but I would sleep during the day. So it just, it didn't really make any sense. So when I went to my doctor, eventually after like four tries of being like, yeah, I'm going to go, and then I'm not going to go because I thought I had her control, she put me on the two because I didn't want to be in the trans-like mm -hmm. state because it's not, you know, I don't want to be addicted to a drug that I have to be relying on. Um, with these drugs, it just counteracts those tensions and those thoughts and I still have them and I still go through my moments where I'm like I really don't want to get in this car but I have to I'm a lot more focused my grades are a lot more better like it it counteracts everything like my depression does come and go it doesn't fully get rid of it it just calms it down to where I can focus it puts it within normal ranges so in case it, like it, when you think you had ADD as an adult it's really your anxiety just going and going and going and you really can't focus on one thing because you're so worried about other things and I think if we're talking about that autonomic arousal you know think about genetics right could it be that you have a tendency for your autonomic system to kick into fight-or-flight mode too quickly yeah. let's just say for sake of argument you know inside your brain, right, you have a homeostasis. You've got a, a system that is monitoring the oxygen level in your cells, right? Let's say that, you know, again, variations in oxygen level is normal in every single person in here, just like temperature. If your 98.6 is norm and you happen to be 97, no big deal, right? If you happen to be 96.2, no big deal. It's still within normal ranges, statistically. It's just an average that fluctuates. But maybe your system is so honed in on oxygen levels that that slight deviation that's still within normal puts your system into alert. So it notices an oxygen drop and automatically your autonomic nervous system says, we need to take extra breaths, we need to get more oxygen in, I'm going to start to get heightened up, and then it takes over. So what the medication does is pull it back into a normal range of responses. And so you want to think of it that way. And that's what we're talking about. When we talk about mood disorders, we give you an antidepressant. It doesn't make you walk around going, oh, your dog died. Oh, I'm happy. No. It means, oh, my dog died? I mean, you're still feeling sad, but it's within the normal ranges of sadness. It's not like, my dog died, I, 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 need, to, I, I need to jump off a bridge, I can't survive without the dog. It's not that extreme. So again, it pulls it back into normal, if you want to think of it that way. So, good, good job. Thanks for sharing that stuff. I truly appreciate it. So, hopefully, that's a learning experience. All of you that have shared that, and, and I do, again, I do appreciate that. One thing I always say, Remember, this is a class, so please respect everybody else. Don't carry people's stuff outside of here and go, oh, do you know that she has an anxiety disorder since age seven? Oh, my goodness. Right? Don't go do that because you wouldn't want someone talking about you. So let's just respect each other. But I appreciate the fact that you feel comfortable enough to walk out there. So thank you. So selective mutism. Let's wrap up these anxiety disorders. I do want to talk about obsessive compulsive disorders, and I'd like to show you some videos. So... Let's see if we can get there, all right? So selective mutism, um, central component of selective mutism is the persistent failure to speak in situations where speaking is expected, such as social and work settings. So the individual does speak in other situations. That's why we call it selective. So maybe they'll talk with their friends, they'll talk with their stuffed animal, but the minute that someone looks at them or expects them to talk into a situation, they choose to be silent. And so again, it's this choice. And you might say, well, 
if there's a choice there, you know, then they're in control of it. Well, maybe not. You remember, the anxiety underneath this may take over and really takes the choice away from them. Because to start to speak creates such anxiety, I can't deal with it. Almost think about a phobia. So my way of avoiding the feared object is not to speak at all. Because I'm afraid I'll open my mouth and embarrass myself. Does that make sense? So here's what we have, right? It says, the first month in a new social situation, selective mutism can be diagnosed if there's failure to speak persist one month and is not due to a lack of knowledge about the language. So you move to a new area, you can't speak. Maybe you move to, I don't know, China. You can't speak Chinese. So you have no way to be able to communicate at all. That's why you don't open up your mouth. That's explainable. This is not due, due to that. Notice it says here it's not due to a lack of comfort with the spoken language. Embarrassment about speaking connected to communication disorder like stuttering. So you have a stuttering disorder and so you're not talking because you're afraid of the stuttering disorder showing itself. That's, again, it's a response to a stuttering disorder. It's not a disorder in and of itself. Does it kind of make sense? This is where it's a disorder in and of itself. And it's also not related to a pervasive developmental disorder or psychotic disorder. Again, because that means it would be better explained by psychosis or maybe autism, something like that. Yeah, when we say developmental disorder, pervasive developmental disorder, those are things like the autism spectrum disorders. Right, yeah, if you're mute because you're autistic, that's a much different story. Again, there's a stronger diagnosis to indicate it. The onset is usually before age of five. Females are more affected than males. Um, incident rate is about 1% of the population, or less than 1%. So this is not something that's very common, but it does happen and it can be impactful. Behavioral interventions include reinforcement, shaping and stimulus control of speech. So I try to encourage you to speak more and more and reward you, much like the learning theories that might, you could think about how you could combine that or use that to treat this. Maybe some modeling, showing a, a, a child the appropriate way to speak or you know, how to do it in, in a way that's not threatening. And those appear to be the treatments of choice. Notice that antidepressants may be useful, but not necessarily the, the choice. Again, because there is this kind of, there's this kind of control over it. The, you know, the child or the person can control whether they speak or not. Now, can I get them comfortable enough to to do it. So again, it's not because of some physical reason that they can't. Other anxiety disorders, this kind of wraps up anxiety disorders. Things like substance medication induced anxiety disorder, panic attacks and anxiety which develop soon after intoxication withdrawal or exposure to a substance. Again, that's medication induced. Anxiety disorder due to another medical condition. Maybe you're anxious but maybe you Maybe you have some kind of medical condition that's making you that way. Um, cancer, uh, you know, some kind of cancer. You get a, a cancer screening and it comes back possibly, you know, a present for precancerous cells and you go, oh, that makes me anxious, you know. HIV, we could talk about that and what that might kind of progress into. So again, there's another reason for it. Um, the other category here is other specified anxiety disorder when applied um, that doesn't meet the criteria for something else, so it's kind of a catch-all. You have an anxiety disorder, but it's not specifically a phobia or generalized anxiety disorder. It doesn't really fit any of the other categories, but, but we know that there's an anxiety root. This might be a default category that later is going to be honed in on the specific disorder or diagnosis. And then unspecified anxiety disorder. Again, we're just not sure where it's coming from. Questions about any of that? All right, so here's part two of chapter six, right? This is the obsessive compulsive and related disorders. These are disorders, at least obsessive compulsive disorder, that would have fallen into the anxiety disorders in the past. Prior to 2013, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, fell under anxiety disorders. In 2013, we separated it out 
And these other ones are what we call impulse control disorders. So you have a, a difficulty controlling your impulses, not being able to pull them back. So they seem very obsessive compulsive. People get locked into certain situations. So they kind of combine those with OCD to make its own new category. So again, obsessive compulsive and related disorders. So here, are they, here they are, these are the five. Obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, hoarding disorder, trichotillomania, which is a hair pulling disorder, um, what is it, excoriation, excoriation, if I don't look at it, I'm much better. Excoriation, which is skin picking disorder, so someone who obsessively picks at scabs or their skin to the point where they continue to cause scarring or everything else, they just can't walk away. And then other obsessive compulsive related disorders, so again, a default category. So let's go ahead and look at these. The first one is obsessive compulsive disorder, so let's define obs obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions are thoughts that intrude repeatedly into awareness and are experienced as irrational, unwanted, and difficult to control or stop. So again, obsessions are these thoughts. You're obsessed. My thinking is obsessed with something. Think of it that way. Compulsions are the actions, right? And the actions that one feels compelled to perform, compulsions compelling, right? So they compel you to do that. They're also experienced as irrational and difficult to control. So just like your generalized anxiety disorder where you go, I know it's unreasonable, I know it's unrealistic. These folks know that the obsessions and compulsions are unrealistic. They know they're unreasonable, but that doesn't stop them from happening. They're not in control of them. Notice it says there may be a possible obsessive compulsive spectrum. So maybe these disorders just fall on a, on a continuum, if you will, right? Some people are a little obsessive compulsive. Some people are a little bit more obsessive. Maybe some people just obsess, but they don't do compulsions. Maybe some people do compulsions, they don't obsess. Maybe there's this continuum, if you have. And then there's the extreme. I tend to be a little particular. I have my own way of doing things. My daughter and I have this little game we play. Uh, I call it a game because she knows exactly what she's doing and I know what I'm doing. But, you know, I come home from work, I'll take off my Crocs, I'll just put them inside the door. I know I'm going to wear them tomorrow. I walk into the bathroom, I grab my slippers. I know I'm going to wear them later. So I leave them in the bathroom, right? So I got to the point where we had this old magazine rack, which we never put magazines in. It was just sitting there beside the couch. It didn't make any sense to me just to have an empty magazine rack. So I throw my shoes now in there. They're out of the way. They're not just laying all over the house. So I put my slippers and my Crocs in the magazine rack. My daughter can't stand that. That bothers the hell out of her. She loves to throw them in the bottom of the closet with like a thousand other shoes of my wife's and my daughter's and mine, right? Well, when she throws them in there, I can't find them. They're buried under everything else. So notoriously, she cleans the house, my shoes go in the closet. As soon as I come home from work, I pull my shoes out and I put them back in the magazine rack. It's just a little, little game, right? Because I'm particular. I want them in the magazine rack. They're not bothering you. Just leave them there. She's particular. I don't want them in the magazine rack. So again, one might say that's a little obsessive compulsive, but it's not to the point where it's detrimental to our lives or our livelihood. When it gets there, then it becomes problematic. So maybe that's the continuum if you want to think about it. Yes? My niece is... 10, turning 11 in December, and we knew she had anxiety for a whole slew of things for another day, but she recently has been diagnosed with OCD because not only is her anxiety so bad that it cripples her mm -hmm. sometimes, um, her OCD is so bad that it then also makes the anxiety worse, but she cannot leave the house and not have a meltdown if we don't go through every single room and make sure every single door is shut. And before we shut all of those doors, we need to check every single radiator and make sure that everything is at least her arm length away because what happens if it's too close and then it's gonna catch fire to the house and then we're not gonna have a house. 
and then we have to make sure that all the lights are on because what happens, you know, if the lights are on and then one of the light bulbs bust and... And some of that, so here's the deal, you know, keeping stuff off the radiator. That's, that makes sense. That's, you know, that's risk management. You don't want to create a fire. But to the point where even rooms you haven't been in or haven't touched anything in, now it's excessive. So great Every example. She yep. And people know that it's excessive, but they can't stop it. Their obsessions dominate their thoughts. If I don't do it, my mind races with all the possible things. If I just take the steps and do these compulsions, these magical acts, and, and it's almost like an act that has a little bit of magic to it, right? You do the compulsion and the obsession goes away. But if you don't do the compulsion, the obsession lingers forever and gets worse. So let's go ahead and take a look. Here's our disorders. Obsessive compulsive disorder, reoccurrent obsessions and compulsions that cause distress. No minimum requirements. Not like, oh, this has to be present for six months. No, it has to be an impact, significant impact in your functioning. And notice, slightly more common in females. Again, I would argue that they're more willing to report it. Body dysmorphic disorder, preoccupation with an imagined or minor physical defect in appearance. I don't know if it's a good example anymore, but um, because um, he's been passed away for a while. But I always like to pick on Michael Jackson um, for body dysmorphic disorder. Michael Jackson was a, a good-looking young man, you know, pop star, right? Now I know he did have a skin condition and it caused his skin color to change, you know, as he got older. But one of the things, he got obsessed with his nose. And if you recall, towards the end, he had so many surgeries on his nose, his nose almost looked flat like a pig nose. It was really almost odd the way that his physical appearance appeared. Well, it's because he became so obsessed with his nose, had sur surgery on his nose so many times that, again, it almost created an issue where one didn't exist. So body dysmorphic, I get, think about the 16-year-old who can't go to school because they have one pimple, right? And of course, that will ruin their standing and social. It's that kind of extremity, that kind of extremeness that doesn't make logical sense, and yet they get so connected to it, hooked into it. Um, so again, slightly more common in females. I would argue this one has to do with, I think women are more impacted by their physical appearance. I think they're judged more. And so that's one of the reasons why I think you see more of that here. Hoarding disorder, persistent difficulty discarding possessions, resulting in excessive clutter. I had an aunt who had lived through the Great Depression. She didn't throw anything out, but she lived through the Great Depression. You didn't get rid of anything because you might never get it again. So there's a little bit of understanding there. We're not living through the Great Depression today, and yet people will hoard and hoard and hoard. Up in my office, I have some photos that a student brought in that was taken of his aunt's house. Um, she was a hoarder and how bad it was. The house actually had to be condemned. It was so full of garbage and mold and, and just couldn't throw anything. Even garbage couldn't throw garbage away. Um, trichotillomania, hair pulling disorder, reoccurrent pulling out of hair. Uh, more common in females. And you might think just on top of your head, nope. Hair on your head, eyebrows for guys, facial hair. It could be pubic hair, and it's just this uncontrollable urge to pick. And maybe it starts out a little bit as an anxiety disorder. Again, you can see some anxiety flow here, right? Um, but it takes on a world of its own. And what they eventually do is they cause so much damage to the hair follicles that their hair doesn't grow back right. So again, you can see how these kind of fit together. They've got that obsessive feel to it, right? A compulsive feel. Oh, and then skin picking disorder, right? Reoccurrent picking of skin. Uh, again, more common in females, but I would argue that they're more likely to report it. So here we go. Let's talk about these one at a time, make our way through, see if we can get at least one of the films in, and I can show you the other one next class. So obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessions and compulsions reach a handicapping degree of severity, occupying a significant amount of time and interfering with normal social, occupational, or academic um, activities. The most common sorts of obsessions involve thoughts about contamination or repeated doubts, 
forbidden urges, almost like these urges of wanting to do something, but you know you can't, and so you need to kind of supplement it or do something else. Um, the thought of contracting some illness um, or disease from a public place. Maybe you have, um, you have OCD type behaviors. And, and again, some of these could be based on reality. You know, you go into a public restroom, you have no idea what kind of diseases or disorders or whatever are on there. You know, but I've known people, I've worked with people that they can't go to the bathroom unless it's at home. So if they travel for a week, by day three, they're ill because they can't go to the bathroom. Even if it's their hotel room that they clean themselves, they get anxious about it. People who can't use the silverware in the restaurant because they bring their own. And you could go, okay, I can kind of get that. And, and you know, again, I'm not saying that it's unrealistic, but it is to a point. I mean, it gets to the point where it almost becomes comical and that's where it's problematic, right? So um, obsessions and compulsions are time consuming. They occupy at least one hour per day and frequently much longer. Imagine you're someone that before you leave the house, not only do you have to check the doors and make sure all the doors are shut, but you have to check every single window to make sure it's latched, even if you haven't opened it that day. So think about how many windows you may have in your apartment or your house. I have an old farmhouse. We have 33 windows. Yes. Because we had replacement windows put in. 33 windows. Ouch. Ouch. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. That's borrowing some money to pay for that from the bank. You know what I'm saying? But 33 windows. Imagine if every day before I came to class, I had to go through my whole house, all the floors, and check every single window to make sure it was latched. I'm going to be late for work. It's going to take at least maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes. If I'm going up to the attic and down in the basement. Sufferers differ in degree to which they're aware that the obsessions or compulsions are excessive or unreasonable. So some may be very aware that this is unreasonable. Others don't think so. Again, I'm, I'm concerned about disease and, and illness and germs. No, this is just me protecting myself. They might not be fully aware of how deeply it's impacting their world. Those that recognize their obsessive compulsive beliefs are not true receive the DSM specifier of with good insight. So those that have good insight into their disorder and others that do not. About 30% of those with OCD also have a tick disorder, some kind of either verbal tick or behavioral tick. Again, they have to do on a regular basis. Or that is uncontrollable. Think about it, maybe that's the anxiety, that's the overflow of anxiety and it's coming out in a physiological way. Most common medical treatment for OCD involves antidepressant medication again. Because remember, these used to be an anxiety disorder. Anxiety or fear, this underlying fear of obsessions, um, that seems to still be present. Notice SSRIs um, are some um, really which substantially uh, reduce the symptoms of OCD. So we know that some of these SSRIs are effective in, again, substantially reducing the symptoms. We know in particularly unresponsive cases, a form of psychosurgery, the cingulotomy, um, could be used in which a small bundle of nerve fibers connecting the anterior cingulate cortex to the frontal lobes is severed producing improvement in some cases, but this is incredibly extreme. You know, psychosurgery is a last-ditch effort. Medication, talk, nothing else is working. Now we're actually going to go in and alter brain structure. We're going to cut these nerves to keep this behavior from happening. That's an extreme treatment. That's not something that can be fixed if you do it wrong. So again, something to think about. Treatment of choice for um, psychotherapies is exposure and response prevention, ERP. So um, maybe you're someone who has to pick everything up, right? Everything has to be orderly in their place, right? 
Um, so what I do is I throw stuff around the house. It's going to, of course, upset the hell out of you, but I prevent you from responding to it. I expose you to that feared kind of object situation, clutter, and now I get you to not respond to it. So I prevent you from responding. Your normal way would be to pick it up. In a therapy session, we're having a conversation. I crumple up my notes, I throw them on the floor, I miss the trash can. You want to get up and go throw that away. I'm like, no, no, we got people to do that. And that's going to bother you. The whole time we're talking, you're staring at that piece of paper on the floor. And now let's talk about that piece of paper. How is that harming you in any way? Let's work our way through that. Get you to relax and let it go. So you can see how that could be an effective treatment. Again, I'm using a very simplistic example, but we could go further. ERP requires prolonged and repeated exposure to the obsession while the compulsive act is, present, or is prevented. And even cognitive restructuring, think about what that word means. Cognitive restructuring, changing your thinking, is common in many cognitive behavioral therapy approaches. So any questions about OCD? All right. Now, here's another one, body dysmorphic disorder, BDD. So we got all these abbreviations, OCD, here's BDD. Uh, people with body dysmorphic disorder are preoccupied with what they consider a defect in their appearance. It's either imaginary or so slight that the preoccupation is obviously excessive. When I was a kid, um, you can't see me if you're listening to this audio recording. Um, when I was a kid, I used to think I had huge ears. I was very, I, I think because I wore glasses and I felt like that pushed my ears out. Um, so I, I just thought I had huge ears. My haircuts had to cover my ears. So believe it or not, I've had long hair, I've had a mullet over time, I've had uh, permed body wave, uh, been blonde for a while, you know. Yeah, I know, you're looking at me. Now I'm just gray. But now my ears stick out. I, I don't like my ears not, like being covered bothers me. Now I have them trimmed out. But at the time, I was so paranoid about my ears that I just, I, I just couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Well, I grew out of it. But this is someone, again, that would maybe not grow out of it. It continues to permeate them. This preoccupation causes significant distress or impairment in normal functioning, and it's not better accounted by another disorder. So give you an example. Maybe you're obsessed about your appearance, about weight loss, and so you're starving yourself and not eating because you're worried you might gain weight. Well, that might be better explained by anorexia than body dysmorphic disorder. There's still a distortion in your view of yourself in an eating disorder, but an eating disorder is more specific. So it's a better explanation, you know, explanation. Um, the preoccupations can involve things like wrinkles, complexion, facial proportions. You don't like the way your face is shaped. It could include um, things like the size or shape of your lips, your nose, your eyebrows, your cheeks, your ears, your hair, you know, areas of the head or face. It also can involve other areas of your body, like showing excessive concern over the size or the shape of your hands. So that's not something we can fix. You got big hands, we can't fix that, right? But people become obsessed over that. They're maybe the size of their feet or what their feet look like. Um, their buttocks, their breasts. Maybe they get obsessed about the, the appearance of their genitals, right? Their penis is too big, their penis is too small, whatever. Um, the body sh size themselves are just their overall build. Again, some of these things we can't alter. Some we can. You get obsessed about, for example, breasts, then you might have all these breast augmentation or changes, you know, breast reduction, breast augmentation. You have surgery after surgery. And of course, there's a plastic surgeon out there who will do it. But you can only have so many plastic surgeries before you start to have problems with that. Again, I use Michael Jackson as the example. The specifier with muscle dysmorphia has been added in the DSM-5 to capture a particular subset of sufferers who believe that their body build is too small or insufficiently muscular. So then they may obsessively go to the gym, try to work out to make it more muscular. 
can, can spend, people who suffer from this can spend several hours a day checking their imagined defect or finding ways to cover it up or hide it. So they spend hours and hours and hours covering up some blemish that they see that nobody else sees. They may alternate between almost constantly looking into the mirror to avoiding them altogether. Um, they may be concerned that it may lead them to isolate themselves from others, and they may actually start to do that. Some of the other symptoms that can show up are things like depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, social phobia. Again, you have this per, you know, perceived body issue or image issue, so now you don't even want to socially interact with others, so social phobia may co-occur. Suicidal ideation may be present. You know, if it's something like the shape of your face, something you can't alter, and you're obsessed over it, you're focused on it so much and you can't, can't cope with it, suicidal ideation could come into play. Not uncommon, um, individuals seek surgery or medical intervention. They may even resort to self-surgery. But oftentimes these make the things worse. The person who decides to, I don't like the way that you know, my genitals look, so I'm going to you know, alter them in some way, but I'm not going to the doctor to do it, and now I've just made the situation worse. Think about that. Treatment, currently SSRIs, again, because they has this kind of anxiety connection. That's why we threw them together, I guess, in this, in this chapter. And CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, considered the first line of treatment. Um, CBT has been shown to be more useful than medication. Because this isn't a, a physiological issue. This is a mental, you're viewing yourself. It's an image issue. Which makes sense that cognitive behavioral therapy would be hopefully more effective. Again, the techniques that you might see in CBT are education, relaxation, systematic desensitization, gradual exposure to the parts of the body that evoke distress. Um, so it's just kind of interesting that, again, it, it, it just seems to be beneficial. And again, it's just as beneficial in uh, body dysmorphic disorder as it is with obsessive compulsive disorder. Hoarding disorder. Um, compulsive hoarders collect items that they later are unable to discard or throw away. They have persistent difficulty in parting with personal possessions regardless of how valuable they are. So it's not like I'm saving my stamp collection because it's worth money. No, no, I'm saving one shoe. So let's just say for our sake of argument, now I, I have a little bit of hoarding. My wife thinks I have much bigger hoarding problem than I do. I have a little bit of a hoarding problem. I will admit that I kind of do. And, and unfortunately over time it's proven itself correct. Like it's actually reinforced itself. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, so maybe I uh, have a blender. The blender breaks, right? So the motor's shot, you know, the motor should be thrown out, but I save the bowl from the blender, right? I save the, the top and the blades from the blender. Well, I might never buy that brand of blender again, but I say, ooh, I could get a blender that maybe this might fit, and so I have a replacement, right? And so then I save it or I have it in the house. And then, of course, I, I never use it again, so it just collects dust or everything else. Um, I had a a different puppy, uh, my dog decided to eat one of my Crocs. Brand new pair of Crocs ate one of them. So now I've got like a left Croc that's in perfect condition with no right. And so for a while I held on to that shoe and my wife's like, why are you holding on to the I'm like, well honey, you know, maybe the dog will eat one of the other shoes. And I'll look out and the dog will eat the left one so now I have a left one that's okay and a right one that's okay and I'll have a complete pair again. I know that sounds corny, right? But it could happen. It could happen. And all it takes is one time for it to happen, for it to justify. I had microwaves, like the microwave died, I've got the microwave. Ended up breaking the little round rotator thing in the microwave that we had. Walked out to the barn, here was a spare microwave. Guess what, the little glass thing fit our microwave. Perfect, ding, 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 don't have to get a new one. Justified all the hoarding I've done in my life. 
Yes. So uh, my grandfather is a little bit of a hoarder. His house is kind of crazy. Not as crazy as you see on like TV shows, but he has two garages, um, top and bottom, filled with all this stuff that he just doesn't need. I swear he has like seven chainsaws. Mm -hmm. Half of them, he doesn't even know where they are. And then more than half of them don't work because he wants to fix them. Right. And then sell them. Right. But and that's always the idea. That's my hoarding too. It's like I have this idea. Well, I can fix them up. I can do something with them, but then I never have the time to actually sit down and do it. And so the hoarding starts out innocent enough, but then it gets to the point where you have two full garages. Yeah, my yeah. mom grew up like with that, mm -hmm. and then ever since she like moved out, got her own house, she's like super clean and like kind of like that weird brink of OCD. Okay. Where she's like, everything has to be super clean. Don't touch this. Like, just leave everything alone. Right. There's no, like, messes. I don't want anything. I don't want hoarding because right. I know where that's going to go. Right. Right. Exactly. So, again, you can see how that happens. Um, I say I'm kind of a hoarder. Um, if you look at our barn, I have one stall that is like the catch-all. I haven't gone through it. I moved from a three-bedroom house into two storage units in an apartment building, and then I moved in with my wife, and I've been with her for 10 years now, and I keep saying I'm going to go through that stall this summer. This summer is this summer I go through the stall, and then I don't go through it. Next summer, I'll go through it next summer. Next summer is it. So I don't open the door to the stall because I don't want to see what's in there. So that's just the default, the catch-all. So I, I argue that I'm not as much a hoarder as I could be. I mean, I think I have hoarding tendencies, but I don't know that I'm full-blown hoarder, right? I do tend to throw garbage away, although sometimes I have a difficult time determining what's garbage and what isn't. So here we go. Hoarding causes significant, clinically significant distress and impairment. It compromising living situations. This is where it becomes problematic. When we talk about full-blown hoarding, we're talking about individuals who they can't throw anything away. Mold starts to occur in their house, garbage and you know, infestation because they can't throw anything away. That becomes a little extreme. You know, you walk into my, my barn, I do save cardboard too because I like to have bonfires every once in a while. And so when I have a bonfire, it's always great to start it with cardboard. So I've got, you know, one area, it's just cardboard stacked to the ceiling, but it stacks to the ceiling until it's full, and then I take it out and burn it. And then I stack it to the ceiling, and then I take it out and burn it. But while it's in between that transition state, it looks kind of like hoarding. Right? Notice it says, in addition to insight specifiers, whether they have good insight or not, they also can be spec specified with excessive acquisition. That means when I continue to get stuff and I don't even have space for it anymore. You said that, um, was it your father had, grandfather. your grandfather had two garages filled to the roof with stuff. So he built a garage so he could have more stuff. So this is someone who continues to get stuff, to acquire stuff, but has no place to put it. And now they have to build even more stuff. So you can see how this can become, again, excessive. Hoarding treatment, um, believe it or not, we don't have a lot of information on it. Um, there's so psychopharmacology for hoarding, mm, we can use it, maybe reduce the anxiety, but it's not going to stop the hoarding behavior. Um, Multi-component cognitive behavioral intervention using a version of ERP, which is exposure response prevention. Gradually exposing hoarders to discarding and non-acquiring situations, together with training them to organize and decision-making skills that kind of better decision-making skills. Do you really need this? Can you tell me when you will ever use this left shoe? By the way, I did throw out that left shoe. Just saying. Now you watch the dog will eat my right shoe. I I'm telling you it's going to happen. Right? Um, so again, we can take a look at that cognitive therapy for dysfunctional beliefs. And what we know is that this kind of approach, this multi-component um, cognitive behavioral therapy approach using multiple different methods, 
actually they did a controlled trial of 23 hoarders and they did find that it was effective. That's a small trial, but at least it's an attempt to try to do something with this. So maybe there's some promise in that. Trichotillomania, hair pulling disorder. Um, we have a few slides left. I know we're out of time, but if you don't mind, I'd like to finish this up so I don't have a two-minute presentation. So trichotillomania, hair pulling disorder. People with trichotillomania pull out their hair, show noticeable hair loss as a result. When we get together next class, I will show you those films because I told you I would, um, and I think you might find them fascinating. Um, episodes of hair pulling, which can be centered on any area of the body, most often involves scalp, eyebrows, eyelashes, occurs in bouts that may be brief or may be for hours. The likelihood of hair pulling is often higher when the individual is under stress. So it does seem to be like almost a stress response, but then it takes on a life of its own. And here's what I want you to think about. Could there be a reinforcement, a physiological reinforcement? When you go and you pull hair, does that hurt? You know, try to pull out a piece of hair. It hurts, right? But if you keep pulling in that one area, endorphins are released to that area to kill the pain. Endorphins also provide pleasure, so it's a pleasure pain stimulus. So could it be that excessively pulling out hair that initially causes pain eventually causes pleasure or release on a physiological level, thus reinforcing the behavior? So you can see um, where we can see that. Notice it can also occur when the person's relaxed or distracted, just like watching TV. And increasing tension or the urge to resist precedes the act, which is associated with pleasure, gratification, for, or release. So again, I get this urge to do it, and then when I do it, I feel pleasure or satisfaction that I did it. So there's almost like a tension release, tension release. It's a little OCD-ish, again, why it falls in this category. To qualify for the diagnosis, trichotillomania must cause significant distress or impairment, not be associated with a medical condition, such as skin inflammation or another mental disorder. Hair loss is widely um, variable across cases from thinning to almost complete baldness in other people. Um, individuals often deny their hair pulling. They attempt to hide the effects. They may avoid social situations due to embarrassment. Um, the film that I'm going to show you when we get back together, they have an interview with a woman with trichotillomania who refuses. Even her boyfriend, fiance, has never seen her without her wig because she's embarrassed by what her head looks like from her pulling her hair out. And that's her fiance has never seen that, right? So, um, so just so you know that. Um, again, um, what we see is, let's see, treatment. Let's talk a little bit about treatment, and then we have two slides left. Most effective treatment for trichotillomania is habit reversal therapy. So it's almost like this becomes a habit that I start pulling on. Um, a behavioral intervention, it combines self-monitoring of hair pulling, training in the awareness of high-risk situations that trigger the hair pulling, stimulus control techniques that interfere with the hair pulling, and an alternate response. So habit reversal. So I try to break the habit of pulling at your hair and try to switch it into something more appropriate. So if I can get you to do something else instead of pulling your hair, maybe I get you to wear a rubber band around your wrist. So instead of pulling your hair, I get you to snap the rubber band as a way to release tension or anxiety. Um, my ex-boyfriend, he had a trick, and yeah. he would pull out his eyelashes, and he, he did use the rubber band, and it really helped him, and he hasn't done it since. Right. So again, and what you're doing is you're just switching habits. It, and it's a behavioral response. We actually use that with um, urges in substance abuse too. Again, this compulsion, this need to feel like I need to use. Every time I feel the urge to go pick up a drink, I, it's almost like a negative reinforcement. I pull the rubber band back, I snap myself, and that takes away the urge. So that's really what we're talking about. And notice it says competing or incompatible responses may include like clenching a fist for one minute. So instead of pulling out your hair, I get you to hold your fists together for one minute. I can't be pulling hair and clenching fists at the same time. Much easier to clench my fists than to be sitting there pulling out my hair. Um, skin uh, picking disorder, right? Excoriation disorder. Um, 
Notice it says that people with excoriation disorder recently pick at their skin, or recurrently pick at their skin. They cause bleeding, they cause scarring, that cause infections. The condition tends to first appear in adolescence, often associated with acne. So again, I've got acne, I'm trying to, you know, Maybe pop my pimples, whatever, but then that skin picking disorder starts to take a life of its own. Now if I have any kind of scab, um, for me, I have to tell you, I kind of have a little version of that. I, I like to feel smooth skin. So anytime I feel a blemish or something on my skin, I can't, it's, it, I just start picking at it and then I make it worse, right? So I have to get to the point where I have to stop doing that. Um, but we all do it a little bit. This is where it becomes so excessive, I'm actually causing scarring and damage. Um, notice it says that um, it can appear anywhere or occur anywhere on the body, but most commonly involves the head and face. And a significant amount of time, sometimes several hours per day, is spent in the activity. Now, I've got to tell you, I don't do that. I don't spend hours a day. But people will get obsessed and get connected in and, and do that. Treatment, SSRIs. Right? They may provide a degree of relief. But notice what it says, studies have found that the medications really aren't overly that useful. It's just a temporary fix, if you will. So interventions based on competing response training have been employed. So again, that's one of the things that we talk about. Or hormone replacement therapy, you know, we can talk about that as well. Um, and that can be, so it could be, there could be some physiological nature to this, um, but it also could be something else. The last slide, and here we are so we can wrap this up, is what we call substance medication. These are, again, other obsessive compulsive related disorders. So we've got substance or medication induced obsessive compulsive disorder, repeatedly uh, body focused behaviors that result from intoxication, withdrawal, or exposure to medication. And sometimes we get that, we get, you know, these are side effects, you know, that somehow trigger a physiological res you know, response. Obsessive compulsive related disorders due to another medical condition or, of course, related to something else. Again, they don't have the full criteria. They don't meet the other categories. So unspecified in some way. So we don't know exactly what the obsessive compulsive nature is, but it seems to be headed that way and we haven't figured it out. Questions about any of these? All right, so thank you for listening. That's the wrap-up of Chapter 6, um, Anxiety Disorders and Obsessive Compulsive and Related Disorders. So thanks for listening.